<laughs> good job, Kim. Really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just a funny story with this passage. Um, we, this, um, so we, we did uh, the, the ad, our Advent series this year. If you were here, our Advent series was Advent and the Gospels. And we did uh, the first section of each of the, of the gospel uh, uh, books. And so when we did Matthew, we did this text. And uh, Matt Block read those 17 verses. Well, the next Sunday, we did a pulpit swap with Refuge Church, who was doing the same series. So the next Sunday, someone else had to read Matthew 1, 1 through 17 at Refuge. And now we're going through the gospel of Matthew. And so this is like the third time that I've been in a service where Matthew 1 through 17 has been read. And all three times, uh, the congregation has applauded uh, the person who's had to read it. So way to go, Kim. Uh, I know that that's, that's no joke. Um, and I appreciate you uh, doing that. Uh, we, we are in a series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, but we're just getting started. And so last Sunday was a little bit of an introduction, uh, trying to maybe invite us into some of the things that I think are important when you consider uh, going through a gospel or going through any book of the Bible. And, um, and so if you weren't here last week, you might want to uh, go back and listen to that, or you can watch it uh, on, on our YouTube page. Um, but but you know, the, the, the beauty here of Matthew starting off uh, his gospel with a genealogy could be easily lost because you just heard those 17 verses and you think, you know, what is that about? Like, I don't even know most of those people. Some of those names I've heard, but the, most, you know, the majority of them I, 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 didn't, uh, I don't know. And, and we spent some time on this back, back in December in our Advent series, and you can go back and check that out uh, as well. Uh, but, you know, if you think about this, I mean, this is Jesus's family. That, that's what Matthew's recording for us. Last Sunday, I said that this, this gospel was written 30 to 40 years after Jesus's crucifixion, but it didn't take Matthew 30 to 40 years uh, to, 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 like, it, 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 was, uh, it wasn't like this, this thing where it's like he waited 30 to 40 years to write it. It's like it took him 30 to 40 years to write it. It's, it's his life's work. He invested himself into this project, and he is an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, and he did his work, and this book, this gospel, is considered a masterpiece for good reasons. Matthew is doing a lot of things uh, as he writes these 28 chapters, uh, the layout of the book. There, there's a number of things that Matthew clearly spent a lot of time considering uh, as he penned these words. He constructed it a certain way. There's themes that he wanted to be revisited. And after all of that time, he still said, let's start it with a genealogy. And so he, he's giving us Jesus's family history. And man, you, know, you, you, know, you, you have a family, and, and your, your family history uh, has some dynamics. You know, it might have some complicated dynamics. It might have some awkward dynamics. It might have some wonderful uh, dynamics. Uh, maybe you heard the story recently about uh, uh, Julia Roberts, uh, the actress. Uh, she's actually had two uh, kind of uh, birth stories that have come up over the last couple months. Uh, a couple months ago, it came out that um, she, she told a story that when she was born, her parents were running kind of like an art school. And um, Martin Luther King Jr., it was just Martin Luther King Day this past Monday, they were trying to, him and his wife were trying to find a place for their kids to go like get some art uh, training, some, I think it was uh, maybe a theater or dance, and uh, no school would accept them. And so they called Julia Roberts' parents and say, can we enroll our kids in your school 
And Julia Roberts' parents said, for sure. So they took Martin Luther King's kids uh, in, into their school. And at that same time, about that time, um, they were pregnant with Julia Roberts. And when Julia Roberts was born, her parents didn't have very much money. And Martin Luther King Jr. paid for Julia Roberts' birth, which is quite a, quite a story. I, I'd, I'd never heard that before. Uh, but then an even, uh, well, an equally interesting story came out. She was on some uh, ancestry show just this couple weeks ago. And um, she found out that uh, in her lineage, in her genealogy, like her great-great-grandpa was obviously a Roberts. That's the line that she came from. But genetically, her great-great-grandfather wasn't actually her great-great-grandfather. That the genes stopped there. Her great-great-grandma was her great-great-grandma, but her great-great-grandfather wasn't the father. And there's some dynamics at play, but in the end, they find out that the genetic great-great-grandfather, was actually from a neighbor's house five, uh, five, 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 five year doors down the street. And so that's a little scandalous. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm surprised Julia Roberts wants to go on TV and talk about that. But this, this, is, this is what Matthew did with Jesus. Ma- Matthew took Jesus's family line, and, and he laid it out here, not just for some TV show that a few people might watch, but in the, the best-selling book of all time that has uh, made its way all around the globe, uh, and it does uh, every single year. And so Matthew uh, looks at Jesus' story, and he sees wonderful components, and he sees awkward components, and he lays it all out there. And part of what Matthew is doing is he's revealing to us that Jesus comes from a real family, a real family with complicated things and awkward things and wonderful things. And if you were pointing at the wonderful things, some of them would be, I mean, the easiest ones to point to would be how he starts and how he finishes. He, he identifies this, this flow from Abraham to David to, to the Christ himself. And that, that's a pretty powerful uh, uh, genetic line. Uh, you know, every Jew, in a sense, comes from Abraham, but not every Jew was of the line of David. And Matthew wants it crystal clear. It's like, look at the pedigree of the Messiah. Look at the pedigree of Jesus from Abraham to David and now to the Christ. That's pretty wonderful. But then there's complicated pieces. And, uh, and, and, and we talked about those a couple weeks ago, and, and we'll talk about them more uh, in just a second. As we walk through this passage, though, I do want you to have your Bibles out. So if you guys don't mind, if we could have the lights up so people can see. Um, the, we're going to look at this and call this Matthew, you know, just Matthew part two. And um, chapter 1, 1 through 17, and I want us to think about it in what you might call three lines. Um, and, and, and biography, the way this biography lays out, you might be able to see it with the paragraph markers in your Bible. And so you'll see a paragraph marker at verse 2. You'll see a paragraph marker either in the middle of verse 6 or at the end of verse 6. And you'll see another paragraph marker <clears throat> at the beginning of verse 12. And so it kind of gives us three paragraphs and this genealogy is put in, in three lines, these three sections. And so it's, it's right, and Matthew wants this. He wants us to think in like this first line is from verse 2 to verse 6. The second line is from verse 7 to verse 11. And then the third line is from verse 12 to verse 17. And as we walk through this, I want, I want us to kind of consider uh, this genealogy uh, from that perspective. So first, the first line of verses 2 through 6 as you look through those verses, uh, there, there might be a few that you know, uh, verses 2 through 6, and there might be a few that, that, that you don't know. But what's interesting, uh, maybe at least uh, sticks out most to, to Bible scholars, is that in these first verses, 
Matthew names four women. Four women are included in this first line of Jesus' genealogy. And those four women, I mean, first of all, it's not very common for women to be included in biblical uh, genealogies. Usually it was being traced through the male, the male line, so that's uncommon. And then all four of these women are not Jewish. They're, they're all foreigners. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting dynamic. And then all four of them have some level of, of scandal. So take, take a look at these four women. The four women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Uh, Tamar, uh, you can read about her story. It's a hard one to read, uh, but in Genesis uh, 38, and she is a daughter-in-law that it ends up kind of, um, uh, uh, she gets uh, in a situation where she plays a harlot uh, in order to trick her father-in-law into keeping, uh, keeping his promises. Um, and the fruit of all that is that she ends up in the line as one of the, uh, he, her father-in-law, ends up as one of the great-grandfather's of, of our Lord. So it's a, a, a weird story, a hard story, a complicated story, uh, but Tamar is included in Matthew's genealogy. The next name is Rahab, and Rahab is actually referred to as a harlot. Uh, she was, uh, you can read about her in Joshua chapter 2, uh, but she was in the city of Jericho, and she was uh, most known for helping the spies of Israel and, uh, and so she was one who actually helped the cause of God in the New Testament, in the book of James. She's actually referred to as a model of faith. And, and she is uh, noted as a, as, a, as a harlot. And she is one of the great grandmothers of our Lord and is included in Matthew's genealogy. Third, Ruth. She, she's the least questionable of the four women, but she is a Moabite. And uh, that's the descendants of, the, uh, of Lot, incestuous line of, of Lot. You read about that in Genesis 19. And so she was low on the social and the spiritual uh, register of the society. Um, it, you know, race, race stuff was a big deal for the Jewish people, and she was in a bad category. And yet, here is this foreigner, this Gentile, and she becomes a literal great-grandmother of David. And so a distant great-great-grandmother of our Lord. You can read about her in the book of Ruth. The fourth woman, Matthew does not name. And there could be a few reasons why he doesn't name her, but he calls her the wife of Uriah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like by calling her the wife of Uriah, he's actually saying that's whose wife she was. And if you don't know the story, we're talking, that we know this woman as, uh, by the name Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was the woman that David committed adultery with. And uh, she was married to uh, a soldier named Uriah. And David had Uriah killed. Well, he slept with Bathsheba, and then he had her, her husband killed so that he could have Bathsheba uh, to himself. And so as Matthew writes this genealogy, he, key, he includes Bathsheba, but he makes it pretty crystal clear. Like, her husband was not David. Her husband was Uriah. And, and Bathsheba is, is more a victim than anything. Um, in, in this story, um, but it is one of the Old Testament's most scandalous situations. And yet, here she is, a great-grandmother of our Lord. And so Matthew, as he writes this uh, genealogy, he includes in this first line these four women. All of them have a level of scandal to them, and yet he includes them all. Now think about this for a second. If you went back and forgot about Matthew's genealogy for a second, and went back and read 
Genesis, the book of Genesis. You, 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 you know, th- this has been identified before, but like the, the matriarchs of Genesis. You know, who, who are the matriarchs of Genesis? Who, who are the ones that, that stick out? And you know, it would be, it, you know, you'd quickly find that they are associated with these, these father figureheads, like the fathers of the Jewish people. And so you quickly run into someone named Sarah. She is the wife of Abraham. You run into Rebecca. She is the wife of Isaac. You run into Rachel and Leah. And they are the wives. I know it's complicated, but they're, they're the wives of Jacob. And so you have, you have these matriarchs in the book of, of Genesis. But when, and, and when Matthew writes the genealogy for Jesus, you know, this opening phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, that, that word genealogy is the same word as Genesis. So he says, when, when, he's like, I want to talk about the Genesis of Jesus. And when he talks about the Genesis of Jesus, you know who shows up in this line? All four of those men I just talked about, Abraham, or Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, all three of them are in that, in that lineage. But he doesn't mention any of those women. None of those women. He mentions these four, these scandalous four, these complicated four. All their husbands are right there. It would have been so easy for Matthew to include them in the genealogy, but he doesn't. In his new Genesis, one commentator puts it this way. One gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to preach the gospel, even in his genealogy. And that's the point. Is that Matthew wanted to preach the gospel even in this genealogy. Matthew is bringing out dirty laundry, but he's not bringing it out for entertainment. Matthew is showing us that the gospel declares that God can and does use outsiders. That God welcomes them and then actually uses them in his work in the world. And and you might think that that's not a scandalous thing to consider. But you have to remember that the primary audience that Matthew is writing to is a Jewish audience. And this is a scandalous thing to suggest. That God is out in the world and it's not just for the Jewish people. That this Messiah is not just for the Jewish people. That God is actually going to, he's working with all peoples of all races and all backgrounds. It's incredible and it's scandalous. And Matthew doesn't want anybody to miss it. Matthew, in writing the genealogy this way, is also showing us that the gospel reveals that God can forgive and overcome and use sinners, both Israelites and Gentiles. I mean, people in this list, boy, they are, they are stained, but they are repentant. And God can use them for his great purposes. So not only is there a, 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 an outsider component of regardless of what your race is that would have been disruptive for the Jewish people as they read this, there's also a declaration here that even if you've screwed up, even if you've, you've made a mess of your life, you think you've made a mess of your life, Matthew's saying, I got news for you. The way that God's at work in the world is better than you think. I mean, we have examples in the Old Testament, a clear indication that Judah in Genesis 38, repenting for what happened with him and Tamar. And we have two different accounts where David repents of what he did with Bathsheba. And so there's this sense in which, yes, they made major mistakes, and yet... As they've turned and come back to God and recognized their sin, God is, is a restorer. 
And God uses broken people. That, that's, that's not a, a lone account here. Throughout the Bible, we see this declaration that God uses broken people. And Matthew wants it shouted from the very beginning of the account of Jesus' life that this is the kind of God we're dealing with. This is the kind of God that's at work in the world. Matthew is using both Gentile and sinner to get our attention. God's divine mercy extends to outsiders, both racially and morally. And that racial component would have been so scandalous for the Jewish people. But maybe that moral category is scandalous for you. Do you you believe, do you recognize that this is the way that God is at work in the world? That God can forgive and overcome and use anyone. The invitation is to come, to to, to run. I mean, think about, I said there's wonderful parts of this this, uh, genealogy. And who did I name? Abraham and David. Now, I understand that God made some incredible promises to them, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but both of those guys have some serious scandal themselves. Both of those guys have some things in their stories that are not not great, and yet God was at work in and through them for his purposes on the earth. And Matthew wants us to taste this divine mercy. He wants us to see that right off the bat, as he tells the story of Jesus, that in Jesus' own origin, in his own genealogy, in his own family tree, the mercy of God is on display, that the doors are so wide open to outsiders of any kind. God's divine mercy. Well, second line, verses 7 through 11. This is kind of the other side. This line starts at a high point. It starts with you know, David, David's son, Solomon. And Solomon, man, Solomon comes to rule Israel at its best moment. Israel has more money than it knows what to do with. Israel is on top. Israel is winning against its enemies. So many things are going right for Israel. It's, it's a high point. But boy, does this part, does this second line plunge into judgment. It, it gets bad, and it gets bad pretty fast. If you're familiar with the storyline of the nation of Israel, uh, after Solomon's reign, it just, it splinters, it falls apart. Uh, The people of God end up in exile. Well, as Matthew gives us this second line, verses 7 through 11, uh, a lot of those names some of you may be familiar with, some of you may have never heard them before. They are not very common, several of those names. But what uh, Bible scholars find interesting about this second line is the changes that Matthew makes, alterations, uh, adjustments to the lineage. Uh, One example of his changes would be that Matthew does not include everyone in the lineage. He, He leaves out at least four generations as he writes about this section. And, and they know that because lineage and genealogy was an important thing for the Jewish people. And as Matthew records this second line, he skips over like four generations, just cuts them out, doesn't address them at all. But there's two specific changes that I want you to see, and I want to talk about them. One, one happens in verse 7, and the next one happens in verse 10. And there's multiple uh, explanations to why these changes happened. But as scholarship has developed, there's less and less reason to believe that these happened on accident or as an error. It's much more likely to believe that these were done on purpose by Matthew. And so look at verse 7. 
you see the name Asaph. Well, when you look at Israel's lineage and you look at the history line of the kings, who is named Asaph, that is, that is not the son of who it says the father is. If you notice in verse 7, it says Abijah, the father of Asaph. That's not actually right. It's not the father of Asaph. It's the father of Asa. A-S-A. And so Matthew goes from Asa to Asaph. And then you get to verse 10 and you see a name. And the name is Amos. And you might be like, finally, a name I know. I've heard that one before. That's a book of the Bible. I know where that's at. But it says Manasseh, the father of Amos. Well, Manasseh wasn't the father of Amos. Manasseh was the father of someone named Amon, A-M-O-N. And so Asa went to Asaph, and Amon went to Amos. What, what is going on? Ma Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience knew, knew the lineage of the kings backwards and forwards. They would have known that that was not right. They would know who the father and who the son of, Asaph, uh, of, of Asa was. They would know who Amon was. What is Matthew doing? Well, there's a commentator named Dale Bruner. And Dale Bruner has spent some really good time with why did this happen and what was Matthew trying to accomplish if indeed it was on purpose. And again, Dale Bruner says, Matthew knows that every Jew knew this lineage of kings. Every Jew knew that that should be Asa. Every Jew knew that should be Amon. So what's the deal with Asaph and Amos? First, he changes King Asa to Asaph. What's going on there? Well, Asaph, you might notice that name. You might, that might be familiar to you. Asaph is the, uh, one of the great psalm writers. Kind of behind David, he's the next great psalm writer. And Dale Bruner suggests that what Matthew is doing is he is playing an intentional game with the audience. And he is inserting Asaph to insert the message of the Psalms into the lineage of Jesus. And as you read the Psalms, there's 150 of them, and there's an incredible range of what the Psalms are doing and what the Psalms offer, but they are a clear call to spiritual formation. They are a clear call to, to tear your heart open and bear it before the Lord, to let him have every square inch of you, to, to wrestle with who you are and what your emotions are, how you're living your life, all the, all the nature of the way that God is at work in you and in the world. And Dale Bruner says, I wonder if Matthew is intentionally playing with this name to insert the concept of the Psalms and their call to spiritual formation into the lineage of Jesus. Secondly, he changes King Amon, A-M-O-N, to Amos. Amos is one of the books of the Old Testament. And why is there an, a book in the Old Testament called Amos? Because Amos is a well-known 8th century prophet. And so again, Dale Bruner asks the question, is Matthew playing a game with his audience to insert the message of the prophets into the genealogy of Jesus. And basically bringing both of these dynamics to play in the story of Jesus. That this sense of the psalmist and the call to, to personal renewal and to spiritual formation, and then the prophets and their call to, to social justice and to social reform. You know, if, if, you're, uh, if you've read the book of, of Amos, 
Uh, in, in my Bible, there's little subtitles. And so he, here, here are Amos's subtitles. I'll read a few. And these, these are in order. Um, judgment on Israel's neighbors. Judgment on Judah. Judgment on Israel. Israel's guilt and punishment. Israel has not returned to the Lord. Seek the Lord and live. I mean, he is dropping bomb after bomb. And he's not the only prophet that does it. I mean, if you have read the prophets and you have heard the way that they talk, you, you would ground your children for some of the things that the prophets say when they're talking about the judgment that is going to come due to their actions. There, there's a, 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 a violence to their language. There's a, a crudeness sometimes to their language. And it's a declaration of how severe their wandering from the design of God in the world is from their unwillingness to obey the God of heaven. In Amos chapter 5, this is what, what we read. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's like a summary of the prophet's message time and time again. They are looking at the people of God. They are looking at the Israelites, whether it's Judah or Israel. They're looking at these, 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 these once united kingdom, now uh, divided kingdom. And they're saying, return. Stop living like that. Stop caring about those things. Your heart is in the wrong place. You think you're doing all of these activities, but your heart is far from me. You, you, you think you're doing these fasts. I want you to help the poor. You're putting on all these shows and you don't care about your community. Then there's this constant call from the prophets to actually pay attention to what God's heart is. And Bruner suggests that when Matthew uses Asaph and Amos... When he puts them together, he's literally representing all the poets and all the prophets of the Old Testament and all the rebuke and all the welcome that they were given to return to the God of heaven. You know, the Old Testament is constantly rebuking the people of God for having too much engagement with the world. And so there's this call to turn from that and to come back and to trust alone in the God of heaven. And then there's a rebuke sometimes for having too little engagement with the world, for being too caught up in fasts and ashes on your head while your neighbor is starving, while the sick are un uncared for, while the poor are suffering. This is a constant call on the pages of the Old Testament. And Matthew, by just adding two letters to Asa and by changing one letter in Amon, he brings these two themes into the storyline of Jesus. And do not miss where Matthew has this second line end. He has it end in exile. In other words, the second line is not a good trajectory. The second line of Jesus' genealogy is basically saying, yeah, yep, you guys experientially, you were up here, but guess what happened? You ignored the God of heaven. You ignored them in your personal lives. You ignored them in your communal lives. And as you did, guess where it took you? It took you right into exile. And you are now a train wreck. You know, the story of Israel is sad, but it is so clear. They rejected God's good way time and time again. They had it right in front of them. 
They had prophet after prophet. Thus saith the Lord, here is the word of God. And some of the times they hear it and boy, they all gather up and they're like, yes, we'll do it. And then like three hours later, they're not doing it. It's a pretty consistent narrative throughout the Old Testament. And as Matthew offers this second line, he shows a people, the people of God, in descent. They're experiencing divine judgment. They're experiencing the consequences of running from God. You know, the Psalms and the prophets of the Old Testament make it clear that the spiritual message of God's mercy must be accompanied by the social message of God's justice, or the Bible is warped. There's this constant recognition that God cares about the whole you. God cares about the whole world. God cares about the whole package. And there's this constant invitation to recognize that both your internal life and your external life matter to God. And when they are out of line, it, you, you, are, you are missing God's design. In, in, the, in the New Testament, James says, faith without works is dead. If you think you can just have this internal life of just you and God, and you can like have this, you know, you're like maybe I read my Bible every morning, but then your life is a mess in regard to the things that God cares about. God says, this isn't going to work. It's not going to work. And then if you think you can just engage in like social causes and help people out there, but your own heart and personal life are a mess, God says, it's not going to work. It's, it's, it's the whole picture. It's the poets and the prophets. It's God at work to transform the whole you into the image of Jesus. So could it be that Matthew changed Asa to Asaph and Amon to Amos to alert the Jewish reader that God not only forgives, but God also demands? That God has a standard. That God is, this, is not just up there offering mercy, which he does, and it's beautiful, but he also has, has, a, has a, a, a say on every square inch of your life. That this Jesus who shows up is not just a savior, which he is, and it's incredible. He's also your master. And he has something to say about the way in which you live your life. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe this? Because whether Matthew did it on purpose or not, boy, does that dovetail with the story of the Old Testament. Boy, does it dovetail with the story of the New Testament, that God cares both about your personal life and about your corporate life, about your communal life. And as you look at these options, as, as you view your own life, listen, this has been my experience. Often, there are individually, we, we give good attention to one and we ignore the other. Usually, somebody is, is much more attentive to one of these than they are to the other. So it's more of a, a private, personal walk with God, and they struggle to have an outward-facing, open-handed love for neighbor. Or they're really good at being open-handed and loving their neighbor, but there's actually, they struggle with the personal, intimate rhythms of following Jesus in their private life and in their personal life. That's not true of everybody, but I'm inviting you to ask the question, is one of these or are both of these areas that need attention in your life? Here's a quote from almost 100 years ago from a, a declaration that was written. As Jesus Christ is God's assurance of the forgiveness of all of our sins, that's kind of Matthew's point with the first line, God's divine mercy. So in the same way and with the same seriousness, 
He is also God's mighty claim upon our whole life, which is kind of Matthew's second line. That God has a, has a standard. He has a, has a desire for how, how we are to live our lives. And he invites us into it. And man, it's not culturally uh, cool to talk about the fact that sin has consequences. And yet the Bible from the first pages on are revealing to us that sin has consequences. You know, this, this second line ends with Israel. Right off the bat, the people that God created are exiled. They sin against God and they, are, they lose the garden. They lose intimacy with the God of heaven. The, the story of exile, run, consider ourselves as in, he says, we are strangers and exiles. We are sojourners in this world. This is not home, not as it is right now. This place is going to be remade in the image of Jesus and the kingdom is going to be perfect and run. doesn't feel like home. Right now, man, it often feels like right is being called wrong and wrong is being called right. It, there's brokenness everywhere. There's disease everywhere. There's sorrow everywhere. It's right to consider ourselves in exile. And exile is not sexy. Exile is not cool. We should never long for exile. We should long for home. It's what God is offering. But that, to, to try to deny the fact that spiritual exile and real exile happen, that, that, is, that is carving out a huge part of the Bible. God in his grace is revealing the fact that divine judgment is part of the storyline, that, that sin separates us, and that sin has consequences. And this second line of Jesus' genealogy reveals that the story of Israel follows that exact trajectory. Jesus' own family tree ends up in exile. Well, what about the third line? The third line is really from verses 12 through the end through verse 17, and it's from exile to Christ. The second line ends with the people of God in exile, but thankfully it does not stay there. You know, judgment is never meant to be the final word. It's never meant to be the final word. You know what, uh, what happened in the garden when sin showed up in the world and broke man's relationship with God? God whispers right away in Genesis chapter 3, I'm about the work of fixing this. I'm sending somebody to fix this. This is not the end of the story. One of the things that I love to remember at funerals is we should hate death. Death means separation. We, we should hate death. But because the gospel's true, death does not get the last word. And this lineage of Jesus, this family tree of Jesus is inviting us to hold on to that reality that as bad as exile is, as bad as judgment is, it's never meant to be the final word. God wants to solve the exile that sin has brought from the garden to Israel to you to me. God's last word to our wavering faith is his faithfulness. Look, the Jews that read about Jesus, the, this, these, this first century collection of Jews, they had been waiting forever for the Messiah to show up. They had been waiting since David. When God said to David, I'm going to give you a son who will rule on the throne forever. They were waiting and waiting and waiting. That was a long time, almost a thousand years. It had been 400 years of silence. And now here in the first century, he shows up. Jesus comes. You bet he does. You think that they maybe had some wavering faith? You bet they did. 
But what does this genealogy tell us? That the main point is God's faithfulness. That God keeps his promises. As we look at this third and final line, this this third line kind of starts leading up again. It it points to and climaxes in in Jesus Christ. God, God had promised Abraham a seed for everyone. And Israel waited. God promised David a a, a son for everyone. And Israel hoped. But that's all they did. They sat there and they hoped and they waited. The birth of Solomon, boy, is this it? This is a son of David. This is a biological son of David. Is this the son that's promised? Nope. He was a mess. And the next one's a mess. And the next one's a mess. And they're all a mess. All the prophets, all the priests, all the kings, they're all a mess. And then, after all this time, nearly a thousand years, Jesus the Christ shows up. That is a long time, but I think Matthew wants the point of this genealogy to be God's faithfulness. God had promised both Abraham and David important sons, and God keeps that promise in the person of Jesus. Notice these three lines from verse 1 through verse 17. It's like an N. The first line is up. It's up in mercy, God's merciful love. The second line is down, down in judgment, God's holy love. And then this third line is back up, up in faith, God's faithful love. And boy, we want to proclaim it. We want to proclaim it on Sundays. We want to proclaim it on Mondays. We want to proclaim it on Tuesdays. Like this, this is the good news of who God is and what he's doing in the world. And we want to proclaim God's merciful love, but that is empty without the recognition of, of, of judgment, of the fact that, that sin has consequences, that God has a holy love. And then ultimately, we want to shout God's final word. We want to shout his final word, Jesus Christ, who is the proof of God's faithful love. That this love of God that permeates everything has mercy, has holiness, and it has faithfulness. And it is on display in the person of Jesus. You know, Matthew is signaling the end of exile that is found in Jesus. That Israel had all these ups and downs. They were in exile, and then they kind of got out, and then they went back in exile, and then that's kind of where things were. Matthew is saying, I got, I got better news than some nation in the Middle East getting their land back. I got way better news than that. Jesus Christ actually, he actually signals the end of the exile. Like the exile that started back in Genesis 3. The exile between God and man. The exile that sin brought with all of its distortion and destruction. Jesus Christ signals the end of the exile. So good. Matthew is inviting us to consider the message of the gospel as it's revealed in the kingdom that Jesus Christ is bringing. And this gospel, Matthew's gospel, is often referred to as a gospel about the kingdom, the the gospel of the kingdom. And so we're going to try to look through that lens as we study the book of Matthew. And we're going to say, what is this kingdom that this long-awaited Messiah is going to bring? What's it going to look like? How's he going to do it? And on the pages of this gospel, Matthew wants us to see it. He wants us to taste it as clearly as possible. Well, as we go to the table, I, I want to invite you, as we prepare our hearts, um, to actually maybe revisit um, Asaph and Amos. 
the poets and the prophets. The call to personal spiritual formation, personal holiness, and the call to social justice or community engagement. This recognition that that faith without works is dead, that loving God and loving your neighbor are two sides of the same coin, that God's call to us is a holistic call. And as you hold up the mirror and, and you look at your life, And you ask the questions of like, this one who came and gave his life and died on the cross and rose again so that I might be reunited to God, he actually has a a roadmap for my life. He's made me new by the Spirit of God, and now he has a path for me to walk in. In what ways? In what ways does God want to, to grow me? In what ways do I need to confess? In what ways is my life not aligned with God's good design? Maybe you look at these things, and there's some aspects of growth that you see, and you your time at the table today is going to be a time of celebration. You're going to celebrate the fact that God has been at work in you in stirring holiness and a desire for holiness. It work in you stirring a heart for your neighbor, open hands and open heart, open life. So whether it's celebrating or confessing, as you come to the table, I want to invite you to consider those two realities. This invitation from the poets and from the prophets to see God's beautiful, grand design for life. We believe it really is the good life. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this genealogy. We thank you for this family tree and all the complexities of it, and including uh, females in it, which is not normal, and maybe changing two names on purpose, which is not normal and then pointing us to the ultimate climax in the person of Jesus, the one who actually really can end the exile, who came to rescue us from the consequences of sin. God, we recognize that your love is so rich and so deep, so many layers, mercy, holiness, faithfulness. God, as we come to this table, we ask that your spirit would do the work in us that that we need to have done. Would you show us areas that we need to grow? Would you show us sins that we need to confess? Would you show us aspects that we can celebrate and rejoice in? God, we thank you for this bread and for this cup. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.